Beth Macy, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. The last time I talked to you, you were getting ready to come to Los Angeles and work Ooh, on the show. I know. It is and I was supposed to be there like four months and it only lasted 10 days because of COVID. Right, right. We so home and everybody went to their home offices and we just did it via Zoom. That's so wild. Your 2018 bestselling book, Dope Sick, is now a limited series on Hulu. It starts October 13th. Do I have that right? Yeah. Warren Littlefield is one of the producers behind the show, and he is also an executive producer on The Handmaid's Tale, which plenty of folks know right now. You're also an executive producer on the show. Barry Levinson's an executive producer on the show. I have a whole list of executive producers. Danny Strong, John Goldwyn, Michael Keaton, the actor. This is the real deal. It is. And Hulu is really pushing the show. I only went to set once because of COVID and you had to be tested like four times, you know, before you went. And so I could only really get there once. But to get there after I had worked in the writing room for four or five months and then to get there and to see it all, like all the sets. I mean, it was incredible, like hundreds of people working on this just to see that this story was made such a high profile by Disney and by Hulu, it was super impressive. And, and also like, damn, like it, this is one of the most important issues facing our nation and that they put so much time and talent and money into it. I mean, it was, it was really cool. I want to start by defining the book's title, which is also the show's title, Dope Sick. Yeah. When I was writing the book, actually, I was writing the book proposal way back in, what was it, 2015? And I was trying to explain in the proposal what I was going to do with this book. And the main idea seemed to center on the fact that many of these folks initially were addicted through no fault of their own through a prescription. And What happens when that prescription stops being available to them is they get really, really sick if they don't have their continuing dose of opioid. And so the reason they are committing crimes, they're doing sex work, they're living on the streets and doing all manner of things isn't just because they want to, quote, get high, like most of us think, but it's because they want to avoid the feeling of withdrawal, which they call dope sick, and which, you know, I've interviewed scores of folks about it, and they all almost to a person will say, you know, it's like the worst flu times 100. And if the reader could leave the story and have grasped that they're not doing it just to be lazy, no good, trying to get high people that they literally have this disease of the brain that for many of them, if it wasn't a prescription directly to them, it was because they had access to it because their grandparents had had been prescribed and there was a bunch of pills they took. When I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, those pills were not out there. They were not in everybody's medicine cabinet. But when these kids came up, these young adults came up, they were and they would be traded around at parties, all of which we get to sort of show in real time in the series. And it, it's really thought provoking and moving. But, but my goal with it, and part of the reason I wanted to be so involved was that just to make sure the show would be something that didn't further the stigma, because I really still see that as being the number one barrier to turning back the crisis, that it would bust the stigma. And I think it does. Dope Sick was published in 2018, which at this point, we're looking at three years ago. How long did it take you to report this book and this story? I was a newspaper reporter back in 2012 when heroin 
became a really big issue. And mostly I wrote about marginalized communities back then for the newspaper. I was the family's beat reporter, but I was always looking for like the story of the struggling communities, which I felt we didn't tell to that good of an extent. So I started writing about the heroin crisis, but it wasn't in the inner city. It was in the wealthiest suburbs. And when I wrote this three-part series, readers kind of spit their coffee out and said, what wealthy white kids are doing heroin? And why was that? And so that's 2012. And it's kind of hard to rewind all that we've learned about it since. But some of them got prescribed, but some of the kids just started out, as I said, passing them around at parties or giving them to each other. And many got involved that way. And what I did initially was I followed these two families, one of whom she had just lost her son to a heroin overdose, and the other of whom was his private school classmate who was about to go to federal prison for five years. And so that runs in 2012. Then I write Factory Man in 14. I write True Vine in 16. And when I'm casting about for my next book, I know that this issue has just only gotten worse. In fact, I tried to make it my second book, but I couldn't convince the editor and agent that heroin was really a big deal. But in 2015, you know, that's when Anne Case and Angus Deaton came out with the deaths of despair, showing that for the first time in American history since World War One we weren't living as long. And the reason we weren't was because of opioids, alcoholism, suicides, and diseases connected to all of that. And that's just continued to get worse. The human cost is really, in some ways, hard to measure because these are rural communities. They've been decimated by globalization and automation. Doctors in these communities have been fighting opioid issues since the late 90s. They were sounding alarms long before anyone else has. And Purdue Pharma came out and said, well, actually, it's not the drugs, it's the abuse that's the issue. Right. They had this phrase called pseudo addiction, so that if you took your 19 year old to the doctor, because you were worried about him because he was running out of his pills for his injury before the doctor wanted to re-prescribe them again, they would say, he's not addicted. You maybe think he's addicted because he's starting to do these bad behaviors, but he's actually pseudo-addicted. And the cure for pseudo-addiction is yet more pills, which that was how they made more money. I mean, that's just one of about a dozen things they did that were really outrageous, many of which crossed the line into breaking the law. And a lot of which are featured in the show. We're going to stay spoiler free on the show, those eight episodes. The first three are being released. And then I think it's one a week. Is that how the release schedule is? Yeah. Okay. But I do want to go back to this idea of what the human cost is. I mean, you have a statistic in the first chapter of the book where by the time the book opens in 18, 300,000 Americans have died from opioid abuse. And that was in 15 years. And then you say, well, another 300,000 are going to die in the next five, because that's how bad things have gotten. And it's exponentially bad. So you're following DEA agents, you're following doctors, you're following the families. And there are some moms, and I'm paraphrasing you, there are some moms who come out and saying survival has to trump shame. So how did you get these families to trust you and let you write about? These are very small communities. There's no hiding anymore. How did you get these families to trust you? Well, at the beginning, like back in 2012, when I first started writing about it, it was tough. The family that trusted me the most was the one, I mean, her kid was already on the front page and getting ready to go to prison. And she wanted people to understand that he wasn't a bad person. And the other mom was very angry at them. And she was very open too. But now there's almost no one that doesn't know somebody that's been impacted by this. So it's gotten easier and easier. And meanwhile, I have a book coming out next year called Raising Lazarus, Hope, Justice, and the Future of America's Overdose Crisis, which I just turned it in on Friday. Oh my God. And yeah, that was a little, little busy. 
but as I was wrapping it up, I was going back to when I wrote the proposal for dope sick in 2015, we thought the overdose crisis was going to peak in 2018. That's what some experts said. And so I was saying dope sick will be great timing because this is when it'll be peaking and then it'll start to come down. Well, no, ma'am, it did not come down. In fact, it has only gotten worse. And then largely because of fentanyl, but then the pandemic happens. And because people are using alone, a lot of the, the meetings got put to Zoom. Some people just stopped going. And just the stress, depression, and isolation of the pandemic fed into it getting worse. But largely, the problem has been fentanyl, but there's just no signs of it slowing down. And a lot of the things the government has done, I know I'm skipping ahead to my next book, which I shouldn't be doing, that people read that, you know, we've put billions of dollars into it. But a lot of it's being funneled down to programs that don't work. Just because the government throws money at something doesn't mean it's getting to the ground, it's reaching the families. And so the families are still largely really suffering. They're being left to fend for themselves. They're, you know, they're remortgaging houses to send their kids to some expensive rehab that they think is going to work because it's it's expensive. But in fact, it doesn't follow the scientific. Most rehabs don't. They're, they're medication-free. They're abstinence-only, which we know doesn't work largely for opioid use disorder. And if I'll just go back to the show again, like that was one of my goals too, is to have, I won't give too much away, but I really wanted to show families struggling pretty much all on their own. And back in those days, the show mostly ends in 07, still cloaked by shame and stigma. And yet the systems then, even more than now, made no room for medication-assisted treatment, which we know is the gold standard of care for opioid use disorder. And people were putting a lot of effort into treatments we even knew then didn't work. So there just hasn't been enough urgency at the federal or the local or state levels on this, in my opinion. Have any of the families from the book been able to see advanced screeners of the show? I showed it to Ed Bish, and I don't know if you remember Ed Bish. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When Ed Bish's son, Eddie, died, he hadn't even graduated from high school yet at the age of 18. And Ed was called home. I mean, I'm getting goosebumps just telling you this. The paramedics were on in front of his house saying, sorry, he's dead. And, and Ed's like, what the hell? And what happened? What happened? And they said it was OxyContin. And this still gives me goosebumps. Ed said, the first time I heard the word OxyContin, my son was dead from it. He had never heard of it. So that's 01. He goes on a rampage to alert parents all over the community that this drug is out there. And it's a party drug now because it's been massively overprescribed and it's sitting there in those medicine cabinets. And he starts this group called Relatives Against Purdue Pharma and he goes after them real hard. And he's still like, I talk to Ed every day. He's a big player in my next book, Raising Lazarus, because he and a bunch of activists combined to try to make the bankruptcy system where Purdue strategically, cunningly landed their thousands of cases against them so that they could get full civil immunity and get all the advantages of their company filing bankrupt when they themselves, the Sacklers, are not at all bankrupt. And so Raising Lazarus follows the activist efforts on the ground to try to get their voices heard. So I show Ed the first five episodes because he knows the story better than anyone he sees. He kept saying, oh, I see what you're getting to. I see what you're getting at. And it was really something to to watch and see it and just to be like shaking his head. Yep, that happened. Yep, that happened. 
And at the very end, the parents do get to testify in Abingdon in 07 at the sentencing hearing. And you see the actor portraying Ed. And he hasn't seen that part yet. I think I sent him a screenshot. But, you know, that was very moving for him because we used his words. We used the transcripts. Mm -hmm. um, So the people in there are saying what they said in the actual hearing. Dopesick is almost 400 pages. How do you even start? And you wrote two of the episodes for the series. But how do you even start to adapt years of research and years of interviews into eight episodes of streaming series. Well, this show is a creation of Danny Strong. And so he did Game Change, Recount, The Butler. He knows how to take a real story and make it propulsive and make it accurate and fair. And so I co-wrote episodes three and seven Um, But I was also involved in everything from the second to the eighth episode. He had already written the pilot. So he very much knew how to do this. And each episode has a kind of theme, but they all move along chronologically. But it's a series of stories that intercut and go back and forth in time, which I was like, this isn't going to work. This is going to be confusing. But everybody who's seen it thinks you just kind of forget about that and you follow it. I mean, it was a very like bold kind of way to show the story. I tell people that it's basically the first third of my book because my book uh, goes all the way to almost the present time. It goes to 2018, 2017. The show is mostly 1996, the introduction of OxyContin through 2007, the first federal plea deal where they admit federal crimes. And with a little bit bringing up to date at the end, but Danny is just a genius at storytelling. Some of the characters are composites. A lot of the victim stories are composites. The Purdue part is dramatized, but it's, you know, it's been heavily fact-checked and legal reviewed. And as we were writing, a lot of new data came out. A lot of new documents were released because of the Massachusetts Attorney General, who was the first to name the Sacklers. And then New York followed suit with Letitia James. And those filings had yet more kind of insider information. We were able to use those. We also relied on some other journalists. We brought in, Gerald Posner had written this great book called Pharma. He became one of our consultants And then Danny and I would do interviews together. We would set up these calls with former reps, former Purdue employees, some of the real life people from my book that I knew really well, but he didn't know. Like we we interviewed Dr. Van Zee, Sister Beth Davies together on the phone. We interviewed one of the first lawyers to bird dog Purdue, like going back to 2002, me and another writer in the room. We brought in, I don't know if you remember Steve Lloyd at the end of Dope Sick. He is a doctor who himself got addicted to OxyContin and has since become like, when I first met him, he was Tennessee's drug czar, but he is a very just wonderful ally to people with SUDs and runs several MAT clinics now. I mean, that's he's devoted his life to helping people get better. So we brought him in on Zoom to the whole writer's room and had us tell his story. And then he just let us ask any question that we had about addiction, about what it was like when the reps would try to come by and talk him into prescribing more. And so that was super helpful. So Dope Set the Show only is a little bit from the book, but then we all kind of combined it in our own research together. 
What did you learn from adapting Dope Sick for the screen? I learned that I really missed the simple sentence that gets you into the history of something. Exposition. You can't do that in a show. You had to show everything or have have it said in dialogue. But that can get really clunky if you're trying to explain how the Congress kneecapped the DEA from going after suspicious orders in 2017, or you're trying to explain how the FDA fell asleep at the wheel because of deregulation during the Reagan administration. And that's why why Purdue was able to slide through and get that drug approved with very minimal studies. And so you don't want to just like have a 20 minute speech about, you know, PowerPoint, basically, you can't do that. So you have to figure out interesting ways to show that with your characters, like we have these two investigators, and they're trying to figure out what's going on, what's happening to our community? Why is this drug overtaking? And why did this company get away with selling this drug so widely without hardly any regulations or anyone going, whoa, 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 our communities are suffering. This is bad. So somebody told me, one of the writers took me aside, like it was a woman, Jess, Jess Mecklenburg, early on. And, and she's because at first I was like, that that didn't literally happen like this. And Danny remembers I was like having a fit because we were having one person drive from one place to another. And I, I'm like, those two locations are nowhere near each other. And he goes, Beth, you're being too literal. We can take care of that with a cut. So but what Jess said, she's like, every scene has to have a point, a turn and a surprise. And you have to figure out how to tell the story without that digression into history. I mean, you can digress, certainly, but it can't just go on and on. And like you can in a book, it was way harder than I thought it would be. I was really glad to get back to narrative nonfiction writing after being in the writer's room. So I got to co-write two episodes and the first, my first one is 03 and, you know, Danny, Danny basically rewrote most of what I did, which is fine. But then I got better as we went on and then I co-wrote the seventh and, you know, much more of what I wrote is actually in that one. It all has to sound like Danny because the whole thing is his voice, but it was, it was like getting a master class in script writing, but I was surprised because how hard it was. And it was just a pleasure to go back to working on the next book. But, you know, I did get better. And if I get to do it again, I'll be better. And it was fun. You guys filmed in Richmond, in and around Richmond, Virginia, which is great. I mean, you could have gone to Georgia, you could have gone to North Carolina, you could have gone to Canada, and you got to film in Virginia. How did the community respond? Oh, the community was very welcoming. We also filmed, like, kind of more movingly to me, we filmed a lot of the small town scenes in Clifton Forge, Virginia, which is a region that was heavily targeted by Purdue reps because it was a manufacturing town and still is to some extent, but to a much lesser extent. And so that's one of those communities. And you see that in the data in communities where opioid pills were prescribed. Those are still the communities that have the highest rates of overdose and have the least resources to deal with it. And so that tends to be where treatment is uh, less available. And so I think the community was like, they were just really thrilled, like Michael Keaton's coming into my coffee shop. Like that was cool. And they're having a premiere at the little theater in Clifton Forge that I'm going to the week it comes out. They were really excited. 
Are they still excited knowing what it's about? Yeah, I think okay. people want people to know. I mean, I think they want Americans to know that a lot of this was foisted on them. I mean, mm-hmm. not just the opioid crisis, but also globalization, which is the subject of my first book, Factory Man. The jobs went away and the government did very little for the people left behind. Very, very little, which I go into great detail about in Factory Man. But in those very same communities, that's where Purdue and then other companies later went in and pushed this deadly drug. And it was just a, a twofer that has decimated some communities. One of the communities in my new book is a small former furniture town in rural North Carolina. And when I first started reporting this book two and a half years ago, they had 500 job openings they couldn't fill. I mean, nobody could pass a drug test. Now they have 1,500 job openings. So when President Biden talks about like infrastructure and we need to build roads and bridges, who's going to do this building? Our infrastructure should be people. We got to get people help if we're going to rebuild our infrastructure. We live in the 21st century, and I'm about to quote the show's Twitter bio, where it says, it was supposed to be a miracle pill. This was supposed to help and not create problems. And yet, I mean, as you said, it's decimated communities. And we're still treating addiction we're not getting it right. Where do we need to start? How do we how do we start to change? I mean, we need systemic change. But you do write about families who are starting to make change, but they need support. They can't do this on their own. I mean, this is such a huge sweeping problem. Like you said, you know, 500 job openings become 1500 because people can't pass drug tests. Yeah. And I mean, first, we just need to acknowledge that we have this huge problem, which you and I know, but a lot of people don't still and they still quote hammer the abusers as Richard Sackler told his team that when people they clung so mighty to this idea that our drug only helps it doesn't hurt. And when people it's people misusing our drugs, it's the abusers fault. We got to hammer the abusers and we are still living with the legacy of those three words, hammer the abusers. So we are still incarcerating people, especially black people and brown people at rates that are ridiculous. And in a very few communities, are we diverting people with OUDs to treatment instead of jail? But that is the answer. In in my next book, Raising Lazarus, I talk a lot about that. And you see people who are just like ramming their heads against the wall, helpers who are trying to, to get criminal justice to open up, treating it as a medical disease and not just a crime. I mean, there's a fine line when a drug user commits a crime, but we got to get to that point before they do and make it so that our systems allow them to access treatment. Harm reduction is a real strategy. Absolutely. I mean, you say this in Dope Sick too. You say we can't arrest our way out of this problem. Yeah. Raising Lazarus begins in a McDonald's parking lot in a dying town in North Carolina with a nurse practitioner as a volunteer after he's worked all day long meeting a drug user next to a dumpster in a McDonald's parking lot. And the guy is like, I'm going to die if I keep shooting heroin. And the nurse practitioner says, well, well, let's get you better. And he says, there's two things. One, you can get better. And two, don't disappear. And so that whole don't disappear is the essence of harm reduction. We're going to meet you where you are, whether it's in a McDonald's parking lot where they're doing low barrier, it's called low barrier medication assisted treatment, or we're going to meet you at a needle exchange. We're going to all acknowledge that you're still using drugs, but we're going to give you clean 
needles so you won't get hepatitis C and HIV. And we know that people who go to needle exchanges are five times more likely eventually to enter treatment. But the whole concept of harm reduction is we're not just here to make you, quote, clean, which is a word we really should stop using. We're here to help you make any positive change, any positive change. Maybe you're using clean needles now instead of dirty, or maybe you're taking buprenorphine instead of taking heroin. There's just all kinds of levels of it, but that really is the answer. But because we've all been acculturated in the war on drugs, I mean, I found myself caught myself many times in the last decade of reporting on this, realizing oh, I have stigma too. You know, I think I'm all woke, but no, I didn't quite understand that Tess Henry, for instance, in the book, I did see that whenever she lost her access to her MAT is when she fell into homelessness, fell out with her family, fell into doing sex work, drug dealing as a way to get through it. But she told me in our very first interview in 2015, we need urgent care for the addicted. And she didn't really describe what she meant by that. But then as I started to do research on harm reduction and needle exchanges, I saw that's exactly what Tess meant. She meant that she could get help just as easily as she had been initially prescribed opioids, overprescribed opioids at a simple urgent care center, you know, that we have all around us. And that was easy enough, but getting treatment was just pulling teeth for poor Tess, who was murdered on Christmas Eve in 2017. And her death, I think, haunts us all still. We're coming up on your hard stop. So I just want to quickly remind readers, if you haven't read Dope Sick, there is a reading list at the end of the book that is terrific. It's it's a really wonderful list of books that Beth recommends. There's also Patrick Radden Keefe's Empire Pain, which came out last year in hardcover. It is it's amazing, that book. It's it is absolutely great. amazing, that book. It's fantastic. There's a new I- book coming out in January mm-hmm. that helped me a ton in terms of understanding the war on drugs and its ongoing impact. It's by a bioethicist and psychiatrist at Columbia named Carl Eric Fisher. It's called The Urge, Our History of Addiction. And I he ends up helping me with my new book and he's quoted in it. But I blurbed it. It's fantastic. And then Ryan Hampton has a book called Unsettled, which is all about the bankruptcy. And we're doing an event together for his book launch this week. And it it's also incredible. That's awesome. I cannot wait for Raising Lazarus. We'll have you back on the show when that's out. Mm-hmm. There's a longer conversation to be had here, but I wanted to grab whatever time I could get with you this morning. And the show is out next week. It is a really important moment for Dope Sick and you, and we're just delighted to be part of it. But I, I do hope people come to the show with an open mind and I hope they come to the book afterwards. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate all your support. It's awesome to see you, Beth. Have a great week. Thank you so much for everything. And we'll see you when we see you. Great. Thanks, Rewa. You take care. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. 